This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, we have an opportunity to save American healthcare and our patients from a tragic demise. And it's probably not what you think. The issue is medication adherence. This is an important yet vexing issue in our American healthcare system. And according to the World Health Organization, medication adherence can have a more direct impact on patient outcomes than a specific treatment itself. Still, it is estimated that a staggering 50% of Americans don't take their chronic long-term therapy medications as prescribed, and the stats show that poor adherence contributes to at least $500 billion in avoidable healthcare costs, and you're going to learn today that it's actually closer to a trillion, and it's killing 125,000 people a year through preventable deaths, and it leads up to 25% of all hospitalizations in the United States, and this issue of medication adherence is so important and it's so vexing to solve though because it's multifaceted and it's deeply entrenched into the business and economics of healthcare. And here at the Race to Value, we believe that we have to find a better way to ensure affordability and promote adherence to medication therapies. And this is literally a life or death situation, both from an economic and a clinical perspective. If we don't find solutions to improve medication adherence as part of value-based care, People will die, and eventually the weight of the entire healthcare system will collapse upon itself due to the unsustainable costs that have been incurred due to the avoidable healthcare utilization that medication adherence would have prevented. Listeners, our guest this week is Jason Rose. He's a leading expert on the trillion-dollar impact of the medication adherence issues in our country and what can be done to address them. Since 2018, Jason has been spearheading value-based care as CEO of Adhere Health. Adhere Health is an innovative tech company that's focused on transforming healthcare by leveraging intelligent data analytics and promoting medication adherence and working with patients to resolve social determinants of health. Customers are managed care companies and employers looking to improve quality of care and reduce costs for their patients and employees, respectively. After one year in his role, Adhere Health has now experienced its fastest ever year of growth and has grown from about 100 employees to nearly 1,000 employees. This is a leader in the value-based care movement that you should be listening to, as medication adherence is one of the most critical challenges to overcome in the transformation of our industry. 
Well, once again, a, another great example of value-based care transformation. We're here at the Race to Value to support you in your value journey by providing these examples and these bright spots. If you don't want to miss any future episodes, please go to racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. And uh, we'd love uh, to get a review or rating on Apple Podcasts if you like today's episode. So let's now hear from Jason Rose as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Jason, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so incredible to have you on the show this week to talk about one of the most critical challenges right now in our industry. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Eric. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, Jason, uh, medication adherence is so fundamental to success in value-based care. If patients don't take their meds as prescribed, they're not going to achieve the clinical outcomes their doctor wants for them. And it's quite often the exact reverse. I mean, they get worse. I mean, the effects of non-adherence are devastating. And the problem is directly attributable to the healthcare affordability crisis that places the burden of high out-of-pocket costs on seriously ill patients. And patients often resort to these cost-saving measures, such as cutting pills or delaying their next refill just to make ends meet. Non-adherence not only can easily cost patients their optimal clinical and financial health, but the nation's health as well. I mean, this is one of the most serious problems in healthcare. It poses a heavy financial impact on all constituents. I mean, the ramifications are huge as non-adherence is directly tied to increased morbidity, mortality, and avoidable healthcare costs. I mean, it's been estimated that poor medication adherence accounts for about 13% or one-seventh of U.S. healthcare expenditures. The New England Healthcare Institute projects it's about a $290 billion problem. From what I'm reading, I think this is an underestimation when accounting for the profound long-term implications of chronic disease exacerbation. I mean, non-adherence is more likely closer to a 500 billion problem for all these health plans and providers and consumers. I mean, we see how it leads to 40% of the avoidable readmissions, 150,000 preventable deaths. And Jason, you've become a outspoken proponent for medication adherence at a national level, and your company, Adhere Health, is spearheading impactful solutioning to resolve this critical challenge. And this is mission critical because if unabated, medication non-adherence will soon be a trillion dollar problem with no end in sight. So as we start our conversation today, can you provide us with more of a background on the financial and societal impact of non-adherence so we could better understand the criticality of this important issue? And how can value-based care serve as an important lever for care delivery transformation to improve adherence outcomes. Yeah, thanks, Eric. And thanks again for inviting me. Yeah, you nailed it. You know, the studies out there show it's hundreds of billion dollars of um, avoidable medical costs that are directly attributed to non-adherence medications. And so the study that I typically uh, reference is the Annals Mycotherapy uh, which is $528 billion was the median, but that was study was in based on data in 2016. So I think we're actually right there, probably around a dollars with the aging baby boomer populations. Patients who aren't taking their medications, they end up in the hospital or they get readmitted to the hospital. They have unnecessary uh, surgeries and that's just the medical side. You know, think about the qualitative side of just pure problems and having your loved ones deal with these issues. 
it's it's really catastrophic for the country. It really ought to be one of the top you know couple issues in all of healthcare given given the size of the actual uh, problem. You know, 20% or so of the U.S. healthcare spend is avoidable. Patients just took their drugs. But on the other hand, it's not that easy. It's not just a matter of getting patients to just take their medications. Then this would have been solved long ago. And so we do need those value-based care programs. Uh, depending upon the type of population we're focusing on, value-based care programs to help those patients take the proper medication and reduce the overall spend. And there's lots of different programs out there. Your commercial employer program is going to be very different than someone who is a dual SNP or someone who is 85 years old with several chronic conditions, which is going to be very different than a Medicaid or exchange member. So different types of programs dealing with different types of situations really are necessary. And so there are a variety of different programs, whether it be commercial employer programs or the Medicare Advantage star ratings or the exchange ratings, or the Medicaid pay for performance programs, they all have unique differences that are, that are necessary to dial on this. Jason, thanks for that response. As, as Eric and you were talking about the cost challenges and some of the, uh, the problems nationally that we're seeing with medication non-adherence, for those in our audience who are thinking about more integrated models of care, we see that one of the biggest opportunities we have is medication adherence for high-risk populations. And for those people, and you mentioned them with chronic diseases, management of those conditions is fundamental to minimize their impact, to improve the health outcomes, and to prevent further disability and reduce the healthcare costs for that population. It has been widely noted that only half of patients with chronic conditions take their medication as prescribed, making the medication adherence improvement a priority for the public health agenda. So according to the World Health Organization, there are a series of factors, or rather than a single one, that determine patients' ability to follow treatment recommendations correctly. And these factors, they interact and potentiate each other's influence in a framework determined by five dimensions. There's the social and economic, the healthcare team and system-related, condition-related, therapy-related, and patient-related. So all that said, we're seeing medication non-adherence most commonly among low-income, uninsured patients that are initiating therapy for chronic conditions. Can you speak to the impact of social determinants of health on medication adherence? And also, how should interdisciplinary care teams attempt to address SDOH by leveraging intelligent data analytics to resolve the social barriers that impact patient adherence outcomes? I totally agree with everything you just said re regarding the cause of non-adherence uh, to medications. And like I was uh, a moment ago to Eric, it just depends on the population. If you are a um, Medicaid or a, a dual or a low-income subsidized member or, or patient, your focus may not be taking my medications to prevent some future exasperation of my chronic illness. It might be simply getting food on my table. And you're making decisions about do I to eat today or does my family get to eat today or do I take these pills that don't feel good when I take them, even knowing or maybe not knowing the, the long-term implications of not taking those drugs. There is a wide range of social determinants of health like that. I always think of it as a, you know, the, like the Maslow hierarchy of needs of healthcare. So you, you know, food, insecurity, 
safe drinking water. I was just in Mississippi this week where there's a water crisis for safe drinking water, awful in the United States of America, that's causing problems with healthcare outcomes and uh, long-term exasperation of illness. Then you get into other areas of uh, STOH in this Maslow hierarchy of needs of healthcare, which would be access to care, transportation to the doctor, transportation to the actual pharmacy to get your drugs. Can you get a mail order delivery of drugs to your home safely without it being stolen? That's a real problem with some uh, areas of the United States is having packages stolen. Health literacy, do you have a good understanding of why your doctor prescribed these drugs? You know, uh, simply having a doctor, having a primary care physician, all these are the issues that are predominant in the social determinants of health, or like I like to call it the Maslow heart, the needs of healthcare. Because uh, if you are prioritizing your food over your medications, it's a very simple equation. I'm going to eat food. Uh, we actually have a lot of experience in this particular area. We've seen where uh, people are seeing, paying for their dog's food over their drugs because they, the dogs to eat. And so there are ways to overcome these so that you can actually uh, that problem. That's what someone is dealing with. These are real situations, real stories, and they really are a lot of the cause of the situation. That would be very different than I would say social determinants of health would be for someone my age or maybe an adolescent, which probably going to be more leaning towards uh, someone who just doesn't understand the long-term impact from a health literacy perspective, maybe the hustle and bustle of going to work and not prioritizing your medication usage to avoid hospitalizations. They're very different types of situations and they really need to be treated um, separately. Well, Jason, many of our listeners out there are taking risk in the Medicare Advantage program as part of their value-based care journey. And I know medication adherence is a key part of MA and it's so important in improving star ratings. And there's a, a renewed focus on that measure of medication adherence. And you recently wrote an article for AJMC entitled Medication Adherence as a Force Multiplier for Medicare Advantage Profitability, Enrollment, and Star Ratings. And you discussed how there's never been a more critical time for MA plans to focus on improving medication adherence. And with the COVID-19 public health crisis tapering off, CMS is demanding plans refocus on outcomes by ending critical star performance safeguards designed to protect plans during that crisis. And as a result, 2022 star ratings performances rose to all-time highs, but they now dropped back down to earth. And CMS is noting that nearly 70% of MA prescription drug plans earned a rating of four stars or higher in the 2022 star ratings compared with 49% for 2023. And MA plans now must find new strategies to navigate an increasingly challenging environment for members who are perpetually non-adherent and focusing on areas that have the highest impact on star ratings like medication adherence will help ensure that these plans can earn their maximum maximum performance and in turn MA plans can successfully achieve exponentially greater success which results in more QBP dollars better member benefit offerings and the key prize you know increased uh, membership enrollment revenues and one can't overstate how imperative the aggregate star rating is on profitability and growth for an MA plan and without this QBP funding the health plan simply just can't afford to offer competitive member benefits and lower premiums and we see that 
these medication related measures make up about 50% of the overall stars rating weightings and adherence measures for things like cardiovascular hypertension diabetes are all triple weighted and in your article you say this is darwinism in healthcare given the impact that star ratings have on plan survival so jason can you elaborate on your thesis for medication adherence as a force multiplier and how should these ma plans and their contracted providers be working together to tackle this important problem of non-adherence. You think about what happened with, with COVID. First of all, the challenges with COVID were actually less to do with COVID. It was more to do with the chronic conditions were getting exasperated because of COVID. So, you know, I think it was something like 94% of all the deaths because of COVID was not because of COVID. It was actually because of chronic conditions that got exasperated due to the COVID issues. And so I had written many papers also during the pandemic to say, this is the time for us to use this crisis, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. Let's focus on those patients during COVID that actually need the medications and need help to get their medications so that we have less mortality, um, in addition to the vaccines, of course. But that was the main problem with, with the pandemic was actually the chronic conditions causing 94% of the deaths per the CDC. But CMS did the right thing. You think about star ratings, and, and uh, I know you have a sophisticated audience. We're talking about HEDIS measures. We're talking about PQ measures, CAPS experience measures, uh, patient experience. And so there was a challenge in not just getting patients to get proper care because we were sheltering in place, but the other part of this is from a HEDIS perspective, there's a lot of medical chart reviews as well, which is purely administrative. They're called hybrid measures. And what vendors and health plans do is they send nurses to doctor's offices and hospitals to abstract medical charts to get the data out of the medical charts, and they upload it to show the actual representation of the quality scores. Well, that doesn't make sense during shelter in place is to have a bunch of people inside doctor's offices and hospitals that are not critical, and they're just there to get a chart to abstract and, and send up into the cloud to get the actual measurement. So the right thing with the safeguards and, and uh, allowing the Medicare Advantage plans to not get worse than they were prior to the pandemic, that what that did was it, it gave this artificial inflation of stars to that 70% where it fell down to, like you said, you know, pre-pandemic levels of 40, I think it's 49%. And it's because of two main factors. One is, is that, frankly, plans did not invest in these uh, medication adherence measures or all the surrounding issues for, for that. They had no reason to invest because CMS put the safeguards in place. But the second reason is that those scores got harder, particularly for the medication adherence measures. They got harder because star ratings, as everyone knows, is very competitive at a national level. So those measures got harder to actually achieve a higher star rating performance. And so you mix the two of them together, lower investment and more competitive rates, it causes the severe change, billions and billions of dollars, some organizations individually in loss. And if you think about medication adherence, there are, we, we talked about Rasset and diabetes examples of three medication adherence, but there are other measures that are not specific adherence or more medication related, such as your blood sugar glucose. If you're not in for your HbA1c, 
and this is a 4.2% of the overall star rating, if you're not taking your diabetes medications, you're going to fail on being controlled at HbA1c. So that a medication measure, not specifically, but you're not going to get there on the in control of your glucose unless you're taking diabetes medications. You think about statins with uh, patients with diabetes, also another 2.1% of the star rating. And then you think about where in the prior year, 33% of all the measurement weighting, it's about to change, so we think back down to 16%, but 33% of the weighting was based on patient experience. Do you like your drug plan? Do you like your doctor? Do you like your, your health plan? Well, if you're not taking your medications and you're having poor outcomes and you're lagging behind on that, those plans that did not perform well and it the medication adherence measures also did not perform in their CAPS measures as well. And you, you could see like the, the worst they were on medication adherence, the worst in CAPS. And so it's this confounding effect. And then lastly, if you're not proving year over year on these measures, these medication adherence measures plus MTM, that's called a quality improvement factor. That's another 5%. So that's how you get to over 50%. It's quite obvious and logical that medication adherence-related outcomes is exactly what CMS is focusing on. They're trying to reduce the process measures, which are, you know, th did you get your breast cancer screening, yes or no? And they're trying to increase that actually matter with respect to real outcomes on performance, like medication-related measures. And we're going to continue to see that. Uh, the advanced notice shows three new measures around uh, benzos and opioids, for example, that they're planning to implement. They're going to get harder on the star rating cut points as well for the adherence measure. They're looking to increase the size of the MTM population. So they're really, I wouldn't say doubling down, I'd say like tripling down on how much of a focus the star rating have for medication-related measures. It's a real critical problem. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of them don't really fully understand that $10 billion quality bonus um, payment. It's geared towards providing money for the benefits of the member's health plan. So if they don't get to four stars, you get none of the QB dollars. If you don't get the QB dollars to invest in your product offering for the members, then you can't compete in the open market on price and benefits to the member. And that has a direct correlation to whether or not a member is going to choose your plan or another plan when they're in open enrollment. So a lot of people focus on the $10 billion, which under regulatory authority really has to go towards the QBP. That's an indirect issue. The direct issue is actually, if I'm below four stars, I can't be profitable and I can't survive. I can't, my, the way help make money is they have more enrollees. That's how they grow. They have limitations on medical loss ratio of how much money they can make. So they're all about growth. They don't have the quality benefit structure and the star ratings go with it. When I'm a member, if you go on PlanFinder or CMS.gov, the system actually auto-sorts the first page or two for the member, the, the um, prospective member beneficiary, to plans that have lower cost, better benefits, higher star ratings. That's how it's sorted out of the box. And that's why for every star rating measure, it has an 8 to 12% increase in member preference. And that's a JAMA study as well as a guidehouse study that validated that. 
So if you don't get to that four stars, you just can't compete at all. If you get below three stars, you're not allowed to increase your membership. And that's a new rule they put in place. So it, it is absolutely Darwinism, uh, Eric, in terms of uh, survival for a plan. Jason, I want to dive deeper into the star ratings and talk specifically about all-cause hospital readmission rates. I mean, these are crucial for MA plans that want to perform highly on the star rating scale. And we've seen a, there's a direct correlation between non-adherence and hospital recidivism. Research shows that Medicare Advantage members have higher rates of risk-adjusted 30-day readmissions than their traditional Medicare counterparts. And since more than a quarter of 30-day readmissions are directly tied to medication adherence reconciliation issues, MA plans have a clear opportunity to improve quality by delivering more comprehensive, timely medication reconciliation services to their recently discharged members. And in a sample cohort analysis for a dual special needs MA plan in 2020, Adhere Health conducted individualized post-discharge medication reviews via telepharmacy and found that an alarming 61.9% had at least one drug therapy problem that would have gone unaddressed without a telepharmacy outreach or intervention. And these pervasive issues led to medical errors and complications that drove health plan members directly back to the emergency room and inpatient settings. How can health plans identify and address medication reconciliation problems to keep their members on track with recovery after a recent hospitalization? To improve their medication reconciliation post-discharge measures or their MRP measures and reduce cost of care, should health plans consider adopting an approach that leverages real-time data and timely pharmacy outreach as part of a strategic proactive plan for addressing readmissions? Yeah, the answer is yes. And this is, uh, is another example of what CMS is doing to put more emphasis on medication-related issues. So in the advance notice uh, that was just put out a few weeks ago, they're actually planning to tire the MRP measure, which is the post-discharge medication reconciliation measure. They're putting it into a higher-weighted uh, transitions of care measure, which is the TRC measure, which is uh, newly implemented. If you just follow CMS guidelines, I would start with following what CMS is suggesting that the plan should do. And by the way, they will get scored on these. So TRC, transitions of care, is a four-part measure. The first part of the measure is that the, the patient's uh, provider within 48 hours of hospitalization, admission, that they're notified that the patient has that their patient has been admitted to a hospital. And then within 48 hours, that same doctor is notified of the patient has been dished from that hospital. And then within 30 days, there is a care coordination activity, telehealth, some sort of a face-to-face, -face, uh, whether it be telehealth or in person, that has occurred post-discharge. And then the fourth measure is that MRP measure, which is now packaged in the TRC measure, uh, which is a post-discharge medication reconciliation. And so they're heavily, heavily focused on that MRP being a live conversation between a clinician, preferably a pharmacist. It can be a doctor, but pharmacists are probably best equipped for that, um, far more than nurses or even doctors, but pharmacists have a live conversation that documents the medications that the patient was prescribed before they were hospitalized and the medications that are going to be probably self-reported 
after hospitalization and then it's, you know, reconciliation of those meds, then that new set of medications and all the support and health literacy and education that the patient gets from the pharmacist really ought to be mailed to the patient and then faxed or mailed to the doctor. So everyone knows exactly the drugs that they should be on, that they were on, that they're not on. Because a lot of the problems with post-discharge issues is that when you look at 25% of all, uh, I've seen studies 25 to 40% of all hospitalizations end up readmission is because patient um, either didn't take the drugs or they didn't stop taking drugs. So they, uh, they had a statin before they were admitted. They got a new statin when they were discharged. Guess what? They take two statins now. And so we've actually had 911 calls on our telepharmacy call center where the patient actually took two statins. They were feeling woozy. And we called 911 this a couple of years ago and um, helped save this person's life as an example. And these are real, these are real problems because um, you know, it's confusing on the, the discharging provider may not know all the drugs you're taking or may not have thoroughly explained it to the patient or patient didn't understand or their caregiver. And certainly PCPs don't even necessarily know at all the patient even got admitted or discharged in the first place. So the TRC measure is critically important. I'll just like end with the response on this, Daniel, is all this needs to be simple. It all needs to be automated. You need to have automation. You have awareness in your in your queue that, that this is occurred and a facsimile immediately goes to the doctor's office. Same thing with the discharge. And the data that comes from the claims prior to discharge should be automated into a clinical workflow. So the clinician who's doing the MRP is having a conversation that's guided by data-driven analytics that's identifying the drug therapy problems, and then the automation of the facts in the mail to the patient and the doctor after the MRP is done. Now, all has to be technology-enabled. Um, it all has to be automated in order to be scalable. Otherwise, you're going to not fulfill the tier measures, uh, but you're also going to fill your patients, more importantly. Well, Jason, despite this growing attention to the medication adherence journey, we're seeing way too many individuals continue to experience diminishing returns when they're sent home from the doctor's office and emergency department or rehab facility or hospital, you know, as you were talking about. And the statistics really tell the story. I mean, for every 100 prescriptions written, just about 50 to 70 are ever picked up at the pharmacy. And then once a patient leaves the pharmacy, a mere 25% of the medications are taken as directed at home, and then just a fraction, 15 to 20% are ever refilled. And all of that leads to this high unnecessary utilization and medical costs that we've been talking about. And remembering to take each medication properly, sometimes three or more times a day, I mean, it can be taxing for anyone. I mean, you have to have health literacy, as you mentioned, but you think about the growing number of seniors that are struggling with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it's just uh, it's just overwhelming to think about what it's like for them. And the statistics show that the typical Medicare beneficiary uh, sees a median of seven physicians per year. And that highlights this need for more coordinated, multifaceted strategies and getting to the pharmacy to pick up a multitude of drugs that have differing refill dates throughout the month it's a hardship and providers can really play this key role in helping patients understand their medication regimens and addressing the barriers that have an impact on adherence. And unfortunately, it's difficult for providers to gain visibility 
into what's happening with their patients' medication management outside the brick and mortar of the clinic walls. And as the nation's population is getting older and inc increasingly more care is transitioned to the home, I mean, we really need to have this holistic framework of support for these patients, particularly this growing Medicare population. And, you know, there was a recent study that came out and they said, you know, home care is expected to increase nearly fourfold by 2025 that, you know, comprising up to 260 billion in care services, which is about a, uh, a quarter of the total cost of care for Medicare fee for service and MA. And we simply just need these, these tools that can be put in place to so each individual can be fully equipped to uh, become and remain adherent at home. So Jason, can you discuss this inevitable shift of care from the hospital to the home? And how can we realize the value that home-based care is supposed to bring to the system through proactive assistance with these multiple touch points and intuitive technologies? Yeah, so uh, let's unpack a couple things that you said. Average Medicare patient is seeing seven doctors. And the doctors may not be aware of what the patient is um, actually medications are taking, have uh, been prescribed, maybe not even all the current conditions, probably not. They're not all working in the same, um, unless they're Kaiser, they're probably not on the same platform. So we we have 30 some dollars of electronic health record stimulus. And so what ended up really happening was, is that we ended up digitizing medical charts in silos. They were previously paper-based in silos. Now they're digitally based in silos. You know, a decade later, and we're really not much further than we were pre-Affordable Care Act on the stimulus with respect to data sharing and real-time understanding of what patients are diagnosed and what drugs they're taking. And then the second thing is, is that we live in a fee-for-service environment for physicians. They are not paid, even if they had the data, they're often or typically not paid for the extra care coordination and surveillance and technology and outreach and all those things that go along with improving the actual outcome itself. I mean, obviously there are physicians and they wanna do the right thing, but they may not have the tools or the staff to actually do that or the incentive from a monetary situation. And so it's a real problem that exists out there where uh, physicians are not aware of the patient's full range of diagnoses and their medications. If the patient doesn't tell them, they may not know about it. And so um, I look at this and I take a step back. Who has all the information are the payers. Payers have all medical claims data They because they're the ones paying the bills. They have almost all the pharmacy data unless they're paying in cash for the patients paying in cash for um, the drugs. They have almost all the medications. And so they have all the data, but they may not possess the actual technology analytics and workflow to reconcile this patient has epilepsy and the patient was uh, diagnosed, you know, two months ago by Dr. Smith for epilepsy, but they have never filled a drug for anti-seizure medication. So who would know that? Well, the doctor would know that they prescribed it, but they may not know that the patient never filled. The PBM, the Pharmacy Benefit Management Organization, will probably never know that the patient didn't fill the first drug because they don't have access to medical data, typically, because I've never seen a PBM with medical data. 
Um, the help plan does have it, all this data in their data warehouses per se, but they don't have a targeting analytics that say a patient who is diagnosed with this diagnosis is not taking any medications at all for this diagnosis. And then when they find out the patient's been hospitalized for an epileptic seizure, which could be up to $50,000 for an event or worse in terms of mortality, that's when you find out the patient never actually took their drugs. And so 70% um, of our drug therapy problems are actually related to patients not taking the drug they were diagnosed with. It's not even low adherence, it's no adherence. And um, it's a real problem with respect to um, complete opaqueness within the uh, value-based care or, or for service system, I should say. When you're in a value-based care environment where the providers are incentivized to reduce the medical costs through the MLR medical loss ratio or find opportunities to reduce the, uh, the drug spend and, and all those types of things for patients, then they have an incentive platform which can pay for technology, can pay for tools, they can partner with the health plans. The plans are with the providers to go do that. And that is really where we need to be. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, this is the predominant health system in the United States. You know, all the big for-profits here, but there is not a significant amount of investment between the payers and the hospitals that are focusing on these issues. They There are pilots here and there. You would have thought 15 years ago that, you know, we're in 2023, there'd be a massive amount of value-based care in place for the country. And there's not, it's still fever. It's about filling beds and UM, uh, universal you know, utilization management. It's not about incentivizing payers and payers that work collaboratively. So I, I do like the public-private partnerships like Medicare Advantage star ratings, those are vehicles that really created a mechanism to kind of force that collaboration. Because in the there's really not much there beyond star ratings. There's it's uh, some plans are more invested than other hospital systems are more invested than other. But I say there's been a seed change across the country on value-based care away from fee-for-service. So I'll go further with respect to medication analytics and medication workflow. So if you think about patients who get discharged home, now they're in the home care environment, most of these home care organizations are not actually focused on ensuring that the patient who just got discharged get their medications. They do do a medication uh, reconciliation home, but they are actually not specifically, specifically focusing on making sure a patient gets to the doctor's office or making sure they actually get their drugs. They're actually more focused on ADLs. They're more focused on mobility and things of that nature. They're not squarely focused on medications, nor do they have the analytics or the clinical workflow tools to focus on anything related to medication. So that's on the home side. If you go into the plans, and this might be shocking to you all, and I've, I promise you, I have spoken to a lot of health plans over uh, specifically the last couple of years, as well as pretty much all the care management platforms, uh, companies as well. And there is a nascent element of Medicaid analytics 
and clinical workflow inside the health plans care management platforms. So you might have a health plan that has anywhere from hundreds or thousands of nurses that are responsible for care coordination. Typically, you know, patients that have a, some events and they need help. Maybe they got discharged. Maybe they're now at home for a period of time. They're, they just left to sniff the skilled nursing facility. But in reality, they're actually more focused on utilization management and care coordination, making sure they get to their doctor, things of that nature, um, DME, all those kinds of things. But they actually are flying blind. They shock you. They're flying blind on what the medications that they should on are of higher risk in nature that the patient is not taking. It's not integrated. They may have a tool that's on another website or another vendor, but it's not integrated in the care management platforms typically. And even when I've seen that it is integrated with some level of alert, it's stale data. It could be 30 years old, which is useless data, frankly. It needs to be real time uh, because patients, you know, medications are adjudicated within 24 hours. So there's no reason why it couldn't be real-time. It's just not. And there's no specific clinical workflow to identify how you can reconcile and identify therapy problems and things of that nature. They just don't exist. Um, and so the care management platform or gearbox towards specific things, they're really not gearbox towards medication-related issues. And so I think there's a real opportunity here where medication adherence analytics, real-time data, in the actual workflow of the care platform, as well as specific workflow tools, such as the post-discharge med rack, are uh, really are should be required fundamental, uh, or I should say foundations of any care management platform, so that you can make sure that those home-based patients are getting the proper care. Jason, this uh, this conversation is really insightful. Thank you for for sharing that information. I'd I'd love to hear more about what you think about pharmacist led interventions and what uh, what the role is that that could play in value based care. And so I'm hoping to to dive into that conversation a little bit. And we know that although pharmacists are most often associated with dispensing medication in retail pharmacies. Their role has recently been evolving to include providing direct care to patients as members of integrated healthcare provider teams. And we've got collaborative care models that include a clinical pharmacist, and these have been shown to alleviate some of the demand for physician-provided care, as well as facilitate access to primary care services, you know, especially those related to medication monitoring and chronic disease management. So with the increasing number of medications prescribed per patient, the need for chronic disease management and the importance of medication adherence, there are many areas of opportunity for integration of clinical pharmacist services within a team-based care environment. And with ACOs that have outcomes-based reimbursement, you know, we've talked about the medication adherence impact on costs through reduced inpatient hospital stays and emergency visits associated with congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, et cetera, that are in the thousands of dollars per patient per year. So integration of pharmacists and physician-led ACOs is a potential solution to a looming crisis in access to primary care as well. And as the industry moves to value-based care, Jason, do you think we'll see more integrative models of care that focus on tackling health disparities with a team-based multidisciplinary approach? 
And will collaborative care be more common than what we see now where pharmacists, physicians, and other clinicians address health disparities separately? Well, I hope so. I certainly would share the desire to have pharmacists be where they should be at the forefront of the of the care team, not use sparingly. They, they really uh, are a, a great complement to the nurses and the physicians that provide care to the patient. And pharmacists are a critical component of that respect. When you think about uh, any ACO or, or any, uh, any type of value-based arrangement for provider organizations, certain states have, I think Ohio is, is one of the more progressive states in terms of compensating um, the uh, pharmacists uh, for care. Uh, if you look at Walgreens and CVs for years, uh, they have been talking about finding ways to free up the store pharmacists from having to be uh, focused on counting pills into bottles where they can do a central function that's regional so that they can uh, the pharmacists can actually do counseling at the at the window, so to speak, as well. So there is absolutely a shift from retail pharmacy and uh, from some states to make sure that the pharmacists have an opportunity to be a part of it. If they're if if the retail pharmacy pharmacists are, are buried behind the shelves and counting pills, they don't have any time, nor will they get paid to actually do the, the actual review with the patient. So they need to find ways to um, make it more efficient using both technology and other central fill kind of uh, categories. The other thing I'd say is, is, you know, you think about ACOs, the typical CEO, and I'm speaking to the Medicare Shared Savings Program ACOs, the typical ACOs have over half of the spend is outside of the ACO. They're actually in specialty. They're outside of the network that is defined as the ACO. And then the second issue is that the patients don't even know that they're even in an ACO to begin with. So um, uh, there, there's a problem. But if you kind of insert a tool that is using the medical data, using the pharmacy data, and finding ways to insert pharmacist-led interventions on targeted high-risk, not every patient, but targeted high-risk diseases where patients are using uh, suboptimal use of their medications, you can make a real impact to the actual benchmark spend, uh, regardless of where the patient's actually getting their care outside of the ACO itself. If you just insert that as a part of your ACO, you can make an impact across the board because the medications uh, are, are so prevalent in um, these high-risk patients, obviously. Well, Jason, a, a previously unrecognized obstacle in value-based care is polypharmacy, and that's defined by the use of five or more prescription medications, and it's such a significant problem in the U.S. I know a lot of organizations that are in value or are trying to, to resolve the, the challenges there with polypharmacy. I mean, it's present in nearly 20% of the U.S. population and 40% of the population over 65 years of age. And polypharmacy is most common among the medically complex Medicare population. And the stats show as many as four in 10 older adults take five or more prescriptions and nearly 20% take 10 drugs or more, which can lead to higher risk for adverse reactions and drug interactions. And individuals with multiple prescriptions are most affected by these challenges because they become burdened with coordinating prescribers. You know, they make the frequent tri trips to the pharmacy. They're parsing through complicated orders. 
to take their medications as prescribed every day. And it's just so difficult, especially for vulnerable patients who are homebound or living in rural areas. And fortunately, innovative digital technologies are helping address the necessary support needed for medication adherence with this group, providing everything from identifying the high-risk members with multiple prescriptions and uh, providing pathways to keep patients uh, safe and adherent in the comfort of their homes. So Jason, can you discuss the challenges of the polypharmacy crisis from medication adherence to the care fragmentation that leads to overprescribing and with optimal prescribing in place, you know, through a more patient-centered cost-effective treatment uh, model, what role can the technology play to promote adherence in the polypharmacy segment of a managed population? Yeah, so not to sound like a broken record, but it comes down to the data and not just the quality of data, but the speed of the data. And so we partner with Walters Clure and also uh, Elsevier for uh, for uh, their reference databases on uh, Med, both MedSpan and Gold Standard within our Adhere Health and Analytics as reference databases to ensure that we have the most up-to-date pharmacy information that is um, available for prescribers to dispense across the country. So if you don't have the most up-to-date reference data and you start running analytics on antiquated uh, reference data for pharmacy, then your analytics will be um, inaccurate. And so really uh, th that investment with those big reference data companies, and it has to be updated every, you know, preferably every month, but at least every quarter, because the, the drugs change that quick. There are so many medications that exist in the world today, and they keep coming out at a hyper speed that it's impossible for any clinician to have a full awareness of every single drug out there and all the contraindications that live amongst them. And so it's really important to start with that foundation. Then from there, obviously, you need to ensure that it's updated, preferably data daily, in terms of what claims have been uh, shown that have been adjudicated claims for patients have picked up their drugs, and then running real-time analytics on those um, information that you can properly target potential over-prescribing in a variety of different ways uh, that we'll, we'll get into in a moment. And then the other area is when you're actually having a conversation with a patient, let's say it's a pharmacist doing a called a post-discharge medication reconciliation, or it could be a nurse on the phone who uh, has all the right analytics that I spoke about in the care management platform, which really doesn't exist so much today or it could be a comprehensive medication review uh, uh, for MTM, whatever the case may be, is that when that patient is giving the clinician self-reported information, there may be drugs that they picked up in cash uh, that, or there's a day or two lag on a patient's um, drugs that they've acquired uh, as a couple of days, then your, your tool needs to have real-time analytics on the spot to show additional contraindications and over-prescribing over uh, that the clinician can talk to the patient about on the spot or their caregiver, of course. And then from a continuity of care perspective, all this should be shared with the doctor, whether it be ahead of time, meaning um, the information is shared with the doctor to make them aware that the patient 
may be uh, either a, a suboptimal use or uh, Eric's question on uh, overprescribing. Either way, there are drug therapy problems in either situation and getting it to the physicians uh, either before or after a telepharmacy visit is critically important. One thing, uh, perspective on engagement with providers. So I actually do like electronic health records, but it'll sound like I don't because I'm going to make another negative comment on EHRs. And I actually used to work for Cerner and I, I have ex extensive experience in EHRs. Um, but in reality, there are studies out there that show over 75% of all the ambulatory communicable communications that exist is over facsimile, not EHR. And it's because of the lack of interoperability between the EHR systems. Call it the four-letter or the three-letter F-word in um, healthcare is fax. And so at Here Health, uh, not only do we have engaged systems that guide the clinician on accurate information and potential over-prescribing or under-prescribing or under-usage or suboptimal usage of medications, but we also share that with the doctors for their help too, and the pharmacists. Go to uh, the pharmacies, back to the doctors, follow up with clinician to clinician discussion about these. And that's that's how you can ensure continuity of care, the patient, the provider, and the pharmacy, those three Ps are all looking at the same type of data in their normal workflow, facts being, frankly, the actual normal workflow for any provider. Jason, we've been talking a lot about medications, and I want to dive into one medication specifically or, or one group of medications. And and But I want to preface it by saying that you know, the, at the Institute, we really believe that value-based care is an economic and a moral imperative. And it's not just a, an end, it's a means to an end, where, with the end being equity. And as I think about the moral imperative to achieve equity, there's no more compelling scenario for the morality of medication adherence than diabetic patients being able to take their insulin. And for patients with diabetes, particularly those with type 1 diabetes, whose pancreas no longer produces the hormone insulin, the daily injection of synthetic insulin is essential for life. But many of these patients, including some with health insurance, they can't even afford to take the dosage of life-saving insulin prescribed by their doctors because of price gouging by the pharmaceutical industry. And for some of these patients, the rationing of unaffordable insulin has proved to be fatal. And we've seen decades of steady price by manufacturers where, where we're to the point that a vial of insulin now costs about $300, which is roughly 30,000% more than the original cost of the patent. If you look at the RAND rankings of countries with the most expensive cost of insulin, the remaining countries that round out the top 10 have insulin costs that are around $10 to $20. And thankfully, recently, pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly, one of the country's leading insulin makers, announced that it will slash its high list prices for some of its insulins and is immediately offering programs to limit out-of-pocket costs to $35 per month for people with commercial insurance, as well as those who are uninsured. I'd love to hear your perspective on medication adherence in the diabetic population and how we could better manage this moral imperative in our country. And also, are you optimistic that the e-lily move in the marketplace will be a bellwether of change for other pharmaceutical companies to follow suit? Well, I, I think there's a, I'm really happy to hear about the Eli Lilly um, change, but in reality, this was uh, not a voluntary change. So uh, I am extremely helpful 
in fact, I'm certain that uh, we will see a massive uh, transformative change. Uh, so if you uh, if you read through the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, the federal government has uh, established a maximum of $35 um, per month insulin supply. And so um, with that, we focuses on the Medicare side. I think it will be hard pressed to not extend that uh, benefit to uh, non-Medicare patients, but uh, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 is is um, set a cap at the $35 rank, and that's why presumably that's why Eli and Lily, you know, took took the bull by the horns and they, they made a change. Um, it's because the federal government required them to do so, and so uh, I am sure that uh, everyone also has already followed suit. Hopefully, they'll do that beyond Medicare. Well, Jason, as we wrap up our conversation today, I, I wanted to land the plane here and and you know talk big picture about the some of the costs that are related to non-adherence. And we we kind of started our our conversation that way. And I, I want to bring it home and provide some hope for our listeners. I mean, we're there's certainly a need for more transparency, especially when you look at you know, prescription abandonment rates that are less than 5% when the prescription carries no out-of-pocket costs and, and it rises to 45% when the cost is over 125 and 60% when the cost is over 500. I mean, there's clearly a relationship there with uh, drug pricing and adherence. And, you know, we're seeing now in Medicare Part D, drug prices are outpacing inflation and it's forcing millions of consumers to make these difficult choices. I mean, the, the choices that you described earlier between, you know, purchasing prescriptions or buying food for that matter. And I'm just thinking as we wrap up our conversation today, I'd love to get this kind of big picture. You know, Jason, how can our country best overcome cost related non adherence in this movement? to value-based care? I mean, do you think we'll ever eventually enter into this era of healthcare where we actually equip the pharmacists and the clinical care providers up-to-date insights on lower-cost alternatives? And, and also, I'd love to get your comments on how Adhere Health is positioning itself in the marketplace as a solution to help these plans and providers deal with the multitude of socioeconomic challenges that predispose patients to cost-related medication adherence issues. Well, again, um, I am hopeful that the cost of the drugs, particularly those that are are uh, so expensive and and really unaffordable, will over time go down in cost. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 also included a certain number of medications over the next, uh, I think, through 2030, if I remember correctly, that there is a requirement for certain drugs to be capped at a certain amount and, and find to reduce the actual out-of-pocket expense. I think it's a good sign that, that the federal government did something about that to start negotiating better rates for, for Medicare uh, beneficiaries. I don't think it was enough, though. I think that they should have gone bigger, better, faster in terms of uh, a much larger uh, a focus on cost reduction for drugs, but they at least a step in the right direction. It's the first time that CMS has, has actually done that to my understanding. Second thing on that is um, from a technology perspective, if you, um, going back to the EHRs, there's also federal regulations around the formulary and providing real world benefit checking, uh, real-time benefit checking in the EHR system. So a doctor is prescribing a new drug to a patient, the EHR system is, is required to be able to show other alternatives 
uh, to the patient. The problem is that each patient's formulary uh, from one plan to the next is radically different. And so the only way the EHRs could comply with the law was to have one single formulary, which is pretty much SureScripts, uh, has it in the country. But there's probably thousands of different, very maybe even more than that, types of formulary. You really need to find a, a different mechanism to get the right information to the prescriber um, and the care team. They can offer lower cost um, drugs and just the you check the box on the federal government uh, mandate for formulary. So with respect to Adhere Health, so I have uh, uh, never been more excited about where the country's headed in terms of a focus on medication adherence. Just the nature of us having this robust conversation, uh, Daniel and Eric, is becoming more and more frequent. There's a desire for plans, for patients, for caregivers, for providers to focus on outcomes. And I do think it requires for certain government-sponsored plans to have the right incentives in place, public-private partnerships to have the establishment of the financials to make that happen. But it doesn't have to be the government either. It can absolutely be commercial um, hospital systems partnering with their myriad of different health plans to reduce the cost of care. You're right to say that the uh, medical cost inflation is is uh, going to be higher than the normal. And I think... Um, it's uh, somewhere in the range of five to seven percent above regular inflation in 2027. So that is a major, major problem for anyone who is taking risk, whether it be the self-insured employer or the commercial plan or or the um, government-sponsored plan. They find ways to reduce the cost of care, and this is a untapped area with medication. So gone are the process measures that really don't move the dial or the uh, Bluetooth-enabled pill bottles. We need to be focused more on these value-based care systems that actually improve outcomes. And so there's no debate that medications do drive better outcomes. And so I'm excited about uh, where, where the um, country is headed. With respect to it here, we have a unique platform that integrates all these various data types, whether it be hospital discharges and admissions, the pharmacy claims and medical claims, the eligibility data, the HEDIS data, all those different forms and functions so that on a daily basis, we have the most up-to-date information that can guide the clinicians to produce better outcomes. But I'd say one of the most important aspects of that is not just integrating all the myriad of data streams and having high quality and speed is, is actually having a centered, uh, a patient-centered platform. It's called, a, uh, the term is patient relationship management platform or PRM. It's like a CRM for healthcare called PRM. And that patient relationship management tool aggregates all of that myriad of data and actually provides insights so that the clinician can actually have a meaningful conversation uh, whether it be the doctor, the pharmacist, the pharmacy technician, the nurse, um, in a variety of different mechanisms, um, that's actually going to move the dial. Because it's uh, one, you need to have lots of arrows in your quiver in order to calm these um, social determinants of health and health literacy and all these problems for a variety of different channels. And so I think having a patient-centered platform is, is really critical. But I've never been excited about where there's headed in terms of getting outcomes federal legislation, state and local legislation um, supporting that, and then really just recognizing that 
fee-for-service uh, really needs to change value-based care. I feel like it's a lot slower than we'd like, but I do feel like we're in the right direction. Well, Jason, I, I share your optimism there, even though the, the current situation is pretty grim. I mean, this is a golden opportunity and there's a increasing recognition that medication adherence, you know, is one of the main issues, if not number one, in terms of value-based care transformation in our industry. It's a, a trillion dollar problem and you're out there with Adhere Health, which is a leading technology company that's providing these medication adherence insights and improving health outcomes. Uh, I'm, I'm so honored to have had you with us today as a leader in value-based care. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and look forward to staying connected. And as we all work together to, to really create a more value-based patient-centered system for, for our country. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Daniel, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.